I know I can relate to that song. That's kind of been my, what my wife and I have been saying for a while now. Isaiah 6, 8. Here am I. Send me. Today's uh, scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, which says, But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Before I go any further, though, let me invite the Holy Spirit to lead and guide me today and hope that your ears and your minds will be touched. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this opportunity that you have given me to speak the words that only you would have me to speak. Help me to get myself out of the way and just lean on you for the entirety of the words that are spoken today. I pray, Lord, that what is spoken would reach the hearts and minds of those that are here, present, and those that may be watching online, that even if it's just one life that has changed, even if it's just one person who is drawn closer to you, this will be all worth it, Father. And I just pray that you would be with me, Lord, and guide my mind, and guide my lips, and my voice. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, during my time in the Army, and I was trained in often, was how to respond to certain enemy attacks. Sometimes we've, we would train if we were to receive direct fire, how to respond, and direct fire meaning, meaning that there is no obstacles in front, that the enemy has direct line of sight on you. So to kind of put it in, in a description would be like taking on rifle fire. We would also learn how to take on indirect fire, which were their obstacles in the way between you and the enemy, and how you would have to respond. We also had to know how to take care of any casualties that were on the battlefield. We called it combat casualty care. Each one of these scenarios had what's called tactics, techniques, and procedures. This... What it did is basically we were training these things so often that it would create a uniform response. It eliminated chaos and indecisiveness within the ranks. And essentially what it would do is it would provide muscle memory. So if these things would happen to us, we would know how to react without even thinking. You know, from the medical training that I received, I still remember when my son was, was very little. We lived in Maryland at the time. And uh, he was running through our kitchen, and our dogs had just drank water. And I don't know if any of you have pets, but sometimes when that happens, there leaves a mess around. Well, my, my son was running, slipped on some water, landed on the back of his head, and knocked himself unconscious. He even stopped breathing for a few seconds. In those moments, I would think that most parents, I figured I might even have done it, or would have done it, was I would wouldn't know how to respond, that I would start to panic. But because of the training that I had received, I knew exactly what to do. So these tactics and techniques and procedures 
There's many definitions for it, but there's one here that I find that is, describes it the best. And it is for the building, sustaining, and delivering core capabilities needed to prevent, protect against, mitigate, respond to, and recover from any threat or hazard. You know, in this life that we have right now, do we have a threat? Of course we do. Whether you realize it or not, you are engaged in warfare. And you're serving either one or of two masters. And Ephesians chapter 6 speaks to what and who we wrestle with. We've read in there before that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. This is our fight. This is our battle. But there's one commonality, regardless of the type of warfare that you are engaged in. One of the greatest military strategists understood this universal concept of war. And this comes from the book, The Art of War, by Sun Tzu. And it says, all warfare is based on deception. Hence, when we are able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must appear inactive. When we are near, we must believe, or excuse me, we must make the enemy believe we are far away. When far away, we must make him believe we are near. You know, the United States Army adopted this concept that they took from earlier in World War II. They saw the British soldiers doing the same thing in North Africa. They created deception. So in, in January of 1944, the United States created uh, a unit called the Ghost Army. This Ghost Army was self-described as the traveling roadshow of deception. This unit was specifically carried out, or created to carry out, visual, sonic, and radio deceptions against the German Army in World War II. They accomplished this by employing inflatable decoys fake radio chowder, chatter, and loudspeakers that, that blared loud, loud sound effects. It was said that this ghost army could simulate a force 30 times its size. And it operated as close as a quarter mile from the front lines. But the interesting thing is that this unit was not formed by your typical riflemen. They were not highly trained operators. This unit was consisted of actors, fashion designers, artists, and audio technicians. You know, on June 6, 1944, they began their mission just in time for the largest amphibian invasion in the history of warfare, commonly known as D-Day. They landed on the beaches of Normandy, and I don't know if you've ever seen any pictures of Normandy, but I can tell you I would be a little afraid. As the front of the boats would fall down, they would have to rush onto the beaches, and just in front of them would be a hill filled with German soldiers, filled with artillery. But what they did is they set up dummy artillery on these beaches of Normandy so that they could draw German fire in the hopes of saving as many U.S. soldiers as possible. 
Several months later, they aided General George S. Patton's Third Army, elude the Germans as they traveled east in France, and then sometime later, General Patton's army, they met heavy resistance in a French city called Metz. Low on supplies, combined with the intensity of the war, a gap opened up in that line. And I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before where a gap opens up in the line, but when a unit is set up, they're trying to take on the forces straight ahead. But as that line opens up, the enemy can now pass through and you'll be taking on fire from multiple fronts. This large army that you once had has now shrunken into whatever it's been divided into. So the importance of this line and holding that line carries a lot of weight. But what they did is they filled up this gap and plugged it up with infl inflatables, with loudspeakers that played soundtracks of roaring tanks, soldiers shouting, and even sergeants giving orders. Their largest deception came in March of 1945, where they impersonated two divisions. This consisted of 40,000 soldiers and 600 inflatables at the Rhine River. They positioned themselves approximately 10 miles south of where our actual forces were located. And what they did here is they created radio chatter to spread false reports. They played soundtracks of pontoon bridge building artillery fire, and even officers yelling at soldiers using foul language. But this deception, what this did is it provided an advantage for the United States Army to cross the Rhine River, which was crucial, crucial for our allied forces to get into Germany. Now, as I said before, this deception was adopted by the British and what they had done earlier in the war in North Africa. So it may have taken at least a couple of years to form this unit. Now imagine, what if somebody had 6,000 years to create deception? What would that look like? You may not have given this concept any thought, but as I described tactics, techniques, and procedures, or TTPs for short earlier, The devil has created TTPs against you. But praise God, he has his own set of TTPs as well. So what we're going to do in today's message is I'm, going to, I'm breaking this down into three sections. We're going to look at what the devil's tactics, techniques, and procedures are, what God's are, and what this means to us. What's the, the so what? So let us look one more time at our scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. You see, that's what the devil did from the beginning. He corrupted the simplicity that is in Christ in the Garden of Eden. But what is the simplicity of Christ? I break this down into two sections. One, coming from 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. 
This is the simplicity in Christ, starting right here. It is love for God. It's that simple. It's not complicated. God is love. He is the epitome of love. When you've asked somebody to describe who they are, I doubt you ever hear that that person is love. But that's what God is. And we know what the characteristics of love are from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which is considered the love chapter. And you can put God before each one of those characteristics. I don't have them on these slides, but God is long-suffering, does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, is not rude, unselfish, is not provoked, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, And I know we know the last one, church. Love never fails. God never fails, and neither does his love for you. The second piece of the simplicity in Christ comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. But without faith, it is what? Impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is... And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So here we have, God is love. And if we have this love in us, he will abide in us and us in him. And if we have this faith, without it, it is impossible. Impossible to please him. We also learn in Hebrews that faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. So Satan corrupted this simplicity in Christ. Right from the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, he broke Adam and Eve's love and faith in God. But this wasn't achieved overnight. This took careful study. And just as we need to understand our enemy and his tactics, techniques, and procedures... Our enemy desires to know us. He has studied us. He has his own army of fallen angels working for him. Think about this for a second. If it was Satan's studied and calculated plan that Adam and Eve should fall and that so we too would fall, how much effort do you think he would put into that? You know, if you look at sporting events, I don't know if anybody here is into sports. I know I used to watch a lot of football. And these professional teams would spend hours and hours, days upon days, prepping themselves for the team that they're going to come up against next. If you are a doctor, you spend your lifetime trying to understand your practice, your specialty. To put things a little more into into perspective, Let's turn to Psalm 38, verse 12. Now, this is David writing in this psalm. And David, in in here, he is broken, both physically and mentally. And he mentions the duration and how much time is invested that his enemies plot against him. So in Psalm 38, 12, it says, Those also who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction, and they plan deception how long? All All the day long. Now that's man. 
if man puts that much effort into a sport or to their, their specialty in the medical field or whatever it may be, or worldly enemy, how often do you think our adversary plans his deceptions against us? Let's look at this in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, speaking of the devil, who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. Day and night, the devil creates his playbook against you. The devil, he desires to hurt you, to cause you suffering, to cause division, not just in politics, not just in the home, but in the church as well. He wants to divide you. And he looks at you and he says, look at what you did. How can God love you? You know, the author in the book of Councils on Stewardship, she says that Satan holds earnest consultation with his angels as to the most successful plan of overthrowing their faith. So who is this brethren that is spoken of here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10? Let's take a look at that in Revelation 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. His target, his enemy, is the entire world. That includes you, that includes me, that includes anyone, sinner or saint. And now, anytime you think of these deceptions that Satan wants to play on you, there's a phrase that may come to your mind, and it's called smoke and mirrors. This developed from early on when illusionists would use just that, smoke and mirrors, to have you see, or have you see, or not see. And that's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. This term, smoke and mirrors, by definition you could say, it is the obscuring or embellishing of the truth of a situation with misleading or irrelevant information. Can you think of a time where he may have misled with irrelevant information or misleading? When in the Garden of Eden he said, you will surely not die. You know, I still remember, we talked about this this morning in our pastor's class about baptism. I can still remember when I was baptized, but just prior to that, I was at an evangelistic series that was being conducted by Pastor Kenny Shelton. I wasn't a Christian yet at this time, but I was sitting there in, in this small church, and it looked like everything that he was saying, he was speaking directly to me. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie before where you can see a crowd of people and all of a sudden they all disappear and it's just a speaker and the person who's receiving that message. That's similar to what I experienced. And during this time, 
all I could hear were the words that Satan was telling me about myself. I, was, I, I can remember my wife and my son both sitting next to me, looking at me. I could see them in the corner of my eye. I could still vision it now. Or they're looking at me saying, is he going to get up? Is he going to give his heart to God? Because you've seen appeals done before at churches and at evangelistic series. And that's what Pastor Kenny was doing. And everything he was saying, it was speaking directly to me. And all I could hear was, look at what you've done. Look who you've hurt. God can't love you. How can he forgive you? Your whole life so far has been with me. Praise God, though, the next day, I didn't do it that night, but I went back again, and praise God, I gave my heart to him. And now I stand before you giving this message. God is good. But the whole time prior to that where I didn't know God, it was as if the gospel of Jesus Christ was hidden from me. Or maybe I didn't even want to see it. And if we turn to 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, we read, But even if our gospel is veiled, or hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. You know, that's kind of what I did for 38 years of my life. I allowed myself to be blinded. I allowed the deceptions of the devil to consume me. And I wanted nothing to do with God. And I th I the way when I read this verse, how I look at it is, you know, if we have a light that is shining on us and we don't want to see it, what do we do? You either turn around or you close your eyes. So you don't have to see that light. So it won't, it'll feel like it's not shining on you. We basically shut ourselves off from God. And I was talking to my wife about this verse, and I have to give her credit for this. But she looked at me and she even said that, you know, even in the Christian walk, it seems like some Christians are wearing sunglasses. Now think about that for a second. A Christian wearing sunglasses. So the light is shining on you and you think you're seeing clearly, but what you're doing is you're blocking the light out. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to reflect, for me to reflect, if you're wearing sunglasses and blocking out that light. I know I was. I gave in to all my desires. I lived in, and grew up in South Florida, and I don't know if any of you have been down there or know about it, but it's full of nightlife, and I was consumed by it. I looked to everything that the world had to provide and tried to fill the gaps that were left inside me from the world. And when things would come upon me, even though I didn't even have a real relationship with God, I would blame him for it. 
Say, why did you allow this to happen to me? If you love me. But we read in James chapter 1, verse 13 through 16, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away from his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. That is my whole message today. Do not be deceived. Many Christians, including myself, had this same type of attitude. Believe it or not, even Adam and Eve once again did in the Garden of Eden. Because they said, This is the woman who you gave me that had me eat. This is the serpent that you put in the garden that deceived me. And many times we want to look to God and we want to blame him. And we want to say, you did this, God. And this type of thinking was very prevalent in many civilizations, such as the Greeks, in their polytheistic view. When disasters or temptations would come, they blamed their gods. And we know that we have this carnal nature where we want to blame somebody else. And each one of us, we, you know, we all have sin. We all struggle with something. That doesn't mean you can't overcome it, so don't confuse that. But we go through these trials, we go through these temptations, because that's what God allows. He allows you to experience these things. I read once in Ministry of Healing, there's a section in there where it says, the author says, think of Israel of old, when they say, if God is leading us, then why do these things come upon us? It is why these things come upon us. It's because God is leading you. Trials and obstacles are God's chosen methods and his appointed conditions of success. But what the devil wants to try to do is he wants to capitalize on your weaknesses. Some of this may not even be news to you and you already know. Well, I know this, so why am I talking about it? I think it's because you might have become presumptuous. I know at one point I did because I thought I could take on the devil myself. Yep. That was a mistake. But then we read in Revelation 12:4 that his tail drew a, through a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. You see, the devil has the understanding that all warfare is based on deception. And he himself knew this. And he knew that all spiritual deception would fall into one of three categories. Because he himself fell into them. Which is lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Let's turn there in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. There's a great dichotomy here between the devil and God. If you remember in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, we talked how God is love. That if you love God, he will abide in you and you in him. If you love the world, the world will abide in you and you in the world. And the first part of these verses are extremely important that I want you to focus on. Where it says, do not love the world. Why? God created the world. He created everything that we see. Why shouldn't we love it? We live in it. He created all of the beautiful things of nature. He gave man technology for, to allow us to grow and to learn. We have movies. We have technology. We have media. Why, why not? When I first began studying about these, these three, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, I figured... I got him nailed. I understand the devil now. That he would use one of these against our weaknesses. And in some sense, that is true. But I did not have him pegged down. You see, the word love here, if you do a word study, is agape. And some of you may have even heard about that before. This agape love, this is a pure and unselfish love. This type of love is to, to take pleasure in the thing, to prize it above other things, be unwilling to abandon it or do without it. That's the kind of love that is spoken here. You may have heard this, like I said, from John chapter 21. Where Jesus has already died and been resurrected. And he's come to his disciples and he asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? That same love that is there is that agape love. And when Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Which is phileo. It's a brotherly love. Two different types of love. But the one that is mentioned here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 this is agape love. John is warning us that if you love anything in the world that seduces your flesh, your eyes, or the pride of your life, it's not of the Father. We need to examine ourselves. See if there is anything that is in you that you agape. Is there something in your life that you will choose over Christ? Three times in the Gospel of John, Satan is referred to as the ruler of this world. You can find this in John chapter 12, 14, and 16. And we also read in chapter earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he's referred to as the God of this age. But I don't want you to misunderstand. This is temporal. He doesn't have full control of this world. He does not have full control over you. Praise God for that. But what does this all mean if he is the ruler of this world? He's a ruler of the system, not the creation that comes from God. 
But the ruler of this world, he wants you to love the world so that he can use the things of this world to cause you, to cause me, to lose yourself to the world. I'll say that just one more time. The ruler of this world wants you to love the world so he can use the things of this world to cause you to lose yourself to the world. Here's a reminder in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Be mindful of that. The devil will use everything at his disposal to distract you, to disrupt you, discourage you. He'll fill your mind with worry, with doubt. And if he can't do it to you, he'll find somebody who can do it to you. And I hope I don't get in trouble for this. But I love you, babe. Sometimes... He'll use those we love the most. We could be so connected to God, but there's times where my wife will say that one word that just, ooh, you had to say that. And it gets me fired up inside, and I just want to get all mad and lash out back. And sometimes, I'll be honest, I do. And then i got to ask for forgiveness later. And, you know, and it's reciprocal. It's the same way. There's times where I have said some things or done some things. That, dis- <laughs> that will cause my wife, that was funny, to cause my wife to be mad at me. To discourage her. To disconnect her from Christ. You know, and I... I almost feel bad for, for teens and adults, young adults growing up now, because there's so many things to distract them. There is so much out in this world, even for us. It's at their fingertips. It's in that little thing that you carry in your pocket that you can't leave home without because it brings you so much anxiety if you go to work without it, speaking of your phones. But everything is at your finger. It's movies, music, knowledge technology. It's all right there. Even the adult film industry. It's exposing your children to it, even if they don't want to see it. It's infiltrated its way into media, into technology. If you look at major movie production companies, Satan is without question using them. Cartoons confusing genders and orientations, targeting our young ones. And as the minds of those in the world are cleverly being conformed to the world, we begin to try to confront these trials with a worldly mind that the devil has so deceptively corrupted and blinded us from the truth. You know, in the beginning, God created what was to be perfect. I've referenced the Garden of Eden several times. Prior to sin, it was perfection of beauty had the most fragrant flowers towering trees 
the most luscious fruit, things you can't even begin to imagine. Everything was in perfect harmony, and by definition, it was perfection. But the deceptions of the devil have created this imperfect world now. But to recap, some of the TTPs of the devil is he plans 24-7 and he does not sleep. He will hide the gospel or disguise it from you. He will draw you away by your own lusts or entice you by your own desires. He will capitalize on whatever you hold on to the world, whatever you agape of the world. He will use it against you, even if you think it's really nothing. And the last thing that he will do is corrupt the simplicity that is in Christ. He will try to break your love and faith in him. But I think we've talked enough about him, and we've gone into great detail, and we have separated ourselves from God. The original plan that he had for us had been broken, and our relationship with him has been severed on our account. And for God to repair what has been broken through the devil, God established his own set of tactics, techniques, and procedures. As Danny Shelton would say, one that would counteract the counterfeit. And what I've done is I've broken this down into four points. Reconcile, redeem, recreate, and restore. It's interesting how God gave me these points, but in the beginning of creating this sermon, it actually took me quite some time for me to come up with this. This hopefully doesn't come as too much of a surprise, but I spent 38 years dining with the devil. I knew his tactics very well. I knew his techniques and I knew his procedures. I lived it for the majority of my life. And as I sat there and tried to ponder, God, how do you counteract this? In its simplest form, we know is Jesus. But how does he counteract it? That first point of reconcile is to bring back to a former state of harmony. And we find this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you, I love this, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Amen. But to break this down, all the fullness that is in Christ this is the completeness that is within him. It is the love. It is the grace, the strength, the unity. It is all. It is in all. It is in you and me. But how? How is that possible? It's in here in this verse. Through his blood on the cross. 
I know we think about this often, and we know that he sacrificed himself, but really, reflect on that. What he had to do to save you. We hear it all the time, but put that image in your mind. The blood that he shed for you. And what I like to do in, in a lot of verses that I come across in the Bible is to insert my name into some of them. And I think here in verse 21 is perfect where we can do that. Where it says, And you, Kevin, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, you are now holy, blameless, and above reproach. You, David, who were once enemies in your own mind, you are holy, you are blameless, you are above reproach. That is God's promise to you and to me. The magnitude of what Christ has done to reconcile us to himself is incomparable. But when I think about this, I think of a time just prior to Jesus being crucified. Jesus was brought out by the, to the multitudes by Pilate. And Pilate had questioned Jesus but could find no fault in him. This is a worldly man who could not find fault in Jesus. God even says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. But during this time, this was during the feast of Passover. And it was common that they would release one prisoner back to the multitude. So here you have Pilate. On one side, he has Jesus. And on the other side, he has a man named Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber. Remember that. He was a robber. When I mentioned earlier what Jesus has done is incomparable, I want you to focus on this. Choosing not to be reconciled to him is you're rejecting what he has done for you. In this moment, when Pilate was asking the multitude as who he should release, they yelled out, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. You know, when you choose your own choice sin over Jesus, you are saying, give me Barabbas. We are no different than the multitudes back then. We are just as easy to say, give me Barabbas. But what God has done is he's humbled himself to come down to this earth, to sacrifice himself, to be the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth, so that you may come to him in love and free from sin, and all of this to reconcile you. Not only has Christ reconciled us to himself, but he's also given each and every one of you, when you come into Christ, he's given you the, rec the, the ministry of reconciliation. And we find this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself 
through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. You see, once we have been reconciled with Christ, there is no time for you and I to be sitting on the sidelines. This is not the time for you to just sit there and do nothing. This is the time for you to share Jesus for what he's done in your life. Share your testimony. It's why you have it. Show his love in you with others. Draw sinners and saints into a closer relationship with him. I still remember the first time that I came across this verse where I read the ministry of reconciliation. It was very soon after my baptism. And when I read this, I immediately knew in that moment, this is what I want to do. I want to bring people and reconcile them to Jesus so that they can see, they can feel, they can hear the same thing that I feel, that I hear, the things that I'm experiencing. Because for any and all of you who have been baptized, I'm sure that you already know. Maybe it happened that same day. Maybe it happened within that moment. Maybe it took a day. But you came out of those waters a completely different person. I know for me, I, was, I experienced love and joy and peace like I had never felt in my entire life. And that's when I knew I want to be that person to bring, in, bring people into a relationship with him, to reconcile others to him so that they don't waste 38 years of their life not understanding who he is or what he's done for you. And truthfully, I could stop here because once you've been reconciled with Jesus and you embrace him as your Lord and Savior, he takes care of the rest as long as you do your part. That's another sermon title that might come, Do Your Part. The next tactic is redeem, which is to liberate by payment of ransom. Let us look at Titus chapter 2, verse 14 where it says, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. I know I was zealous for good works when I was reconciled back to him. And now he promises to redeem us from every lawless deed. This process of redemption is simple. Again, it's not to be overcomplicated. That's exactly what the devil wants you to think, that it's complicated, but it is not. God looks to completely eradicate every sin and to make us holy, that we could once again be in the presence of his son and with him. The Bible here says that Jesus Christ gave himself that he might redeem us. So the sad part is, you can choose not to be redeemed. This is a gift that can either be accepted or denied. But see, Jesus, he says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
He gave his life to be a payment for you. This was a conscious choice by Jesus. So that all humanity might be redeemed. Can you, can you imagine having to lay your life down for someone you love? I know I could. My wife, my son, my daughter. I would gladly lay down my life for them. Easily. Wouldn't even think about it. Now, can you imagine giving your life for someone who hates you? That's what Jesus did. He didn't just give his life for the ones that love him, the ones that have faith in him. He even gave his life for the ones that hate him. So how is it possible then to be redeemed from everything that we have done or continue to do that goes against God? Some might even be watching right now and say, I've gone too far. How can God do that? I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. The Bible says, Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Now, I want you to take that word, Egyptians, and replace that with Satan's deceptions. It now says, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from the burdens of Satan's deceptions. God promises to bring you out from those burdens, whatever is holding on to you. He promises to free you from it. Exactly. He will, Bob. Now, the next part of this tactic, technique, and procedure can be both pleasant and sometimes unpleasant. And I know that from experience. And this is recreate. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Many of us know this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now when you read this, it's a praise God moment. But it's also conditional. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ. But see, once you're in Christ and you, you sincerely accept him into your life, your past is just that. It's your past. It's been erased in God's eyes. Amen. Everything in your life from that moment on is new. But what does that recreation process look like? You know, as a new Christian, someone who just comes to Jesus, your perspective on life begins to change. You look at things a little differently. You don't see things in that same worldly view that you did before. Some things in your life, God will immediately take it away from you. He will give you the strength to overcome it. For me, it was smoking. It was the one thing that still held its weight over me. 
was smoking. Should have never started that. Right? But the Lord gave me the strength to overcome it. I couldn't do it. I leaned on him for it in constant prayer. He helped me get over my foul language. I was in the army. I did not speak as proper as I do now. Anyone who's been in the army before, they are very, very colorful in their language. And the Navy and the Marines. It doesn't matter what service you're in. But see, like I mentioned earlier, your life is going to be filled with a love and a peace that's indescribable. I can't tell you what it's going to be like. You have to experience it for yourself. The remainder of your Christian life, this is the part where it can be a little difficult. Because this is the character building time. Or as Pastor John has told me, it's time for you to go in the oven. And it's happened to me before. And I'll admit, Pastor John has seen those moments where I'm in the oven. And maybe he's seen some times where you have been in the oven. And he came up to me and wanted to, to help me. And I just said, Pastor, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Not right now. I am too angry. And he said, okay. And he just walked away. And the next day, I, I did go up to him and I did apologize and said sorry for my actions. And what his response was is, God put you in the oven and I wasn't gonna, about to take you out. He did not take me out. Praise God, because I learned what I was going through and what God wanted to teach me. And Pastor John has also used the reference of when you're in the oven, it's kind of like when you're baking a cake. If you take it out too early, it's just going to fall on itself. It's going to turn into mush. If you take it out too late, you're going to be burnt. You're going to be crisp. But don't worry. God will take you out of that oven just when he wants to. But as you, we continue this point of recreation, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 through 24. The Bible says that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. It says here that you put off. In the previous verse, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ. This does take some work on your part. Just a little. All you have to do is take one step, and God will take care of the rest. As I tell my wife all the time, when she's faced with something, whatever the case may be, it takes human effort combined with divine power. You have to want it, and God will take care of the rest. But you have to want it. God is going to create what you were meant to be, both righteous and holy. The final piece of recreation, and I think this is the prayer that we should pray daily, comes from Psalm 51, verse 10. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That recreation process can be difficult. Change is difficult. We have habits that we've developed over our lifetime. Maybe we've brought on new habits recently. It can be changed. God will give you an unwavering determination to will and do for his good pleasure. The last point is restore. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 23, verse 1 through 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I want to tell you of a video that I saw. I was doing a a family worship once on 3ABN, and my buddy Ryan Day afterwards, and he talked about it on this family worship. He talked, it's very short. If you haven't seen it, go on YouTube and check it out. But it's talking about the green pastures that are in Israel. And in this video, the gentleman who is speaking, it's on like a, a tour. He's showing the people these green pastures. And when you look at it, it looks like nothing but rocks and dust. And that area is called green pastures. And you could see lines already dug into the mountains and the hills from all of the the sheep that have been shepherded through. And it looks like they're eating rocks. You can't see any vegetation there. But as the tour guide brought them along and showed them that there, in fact, is grass growing in this desert. That at night, as the winds blow through, it brings moisture. And it hits these rocks, and it seeps down in between them. And that's where these blades of grass grow. And you could see the shepherd bringing its sheep. And with every step, it's giving all that that sheep needs. A little bite here. Takes another step. A little more blades of grass here takes another step and another blade of grass here. You see, that restoration process, you will no longer have a need for anything. With each step, God will provide everything that you need. And I want you to remember the simplicity in Christ, love and faith. Trust the shepherd, to give you what you need in that moment. You know, in that video, the gentleman says, warring is dealing with tomorrow's problems on today's pasture. Remember that Jesus is going to give you everything that you need in that moment. And he will restore you. He will bring you back to your, the original state that he had intended for us. Now next we're going to look at Psalm 51, verse 12 and 13, where it says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. 
And if you remember earlier where we talked about you are given the ministry of reconciliation, here we're also told that we are to teach transgressors your ways. Once again, when we abide in Jesus, this is the time for you to get up and start working for him. That restoration process for you also includes you sharing him, you teaching him to others. Now, I want to share a quick story. When my wife and I, we just went on vacation while everyone was gone at ASI. We went to Georgia to visit some friends. And on our way back, we always like to eat at the restaurant Moe's. Some of you may not like Moe's. I get it. You might be a Chipotle. I know my son-in-law Ben is a Chipotle guy. Moe's is better. Um, <laughs> but while we were there, and I'm ordering my food and what's going to go in my burrito. love burritos. I hear my wife off the side at the end. And she's talking to this gentleman about 3ABN and witnessing to this gentleman. And I'm sitting here trying to order my burrito. But I can't help but overhear some of the things that she's saying. She's sharing Jesus with others. And as I came up to the, to the register... The gentleman came around the corner, because apparently he knows me now, and my whole life, because <laughs> my wife shared our testimony, which is great, amen, praise God. But he came up to me, and he just shook my hand and said, I just want to meet you. Praise God for what he's done in your life. And he told me a little bit about himself. I hope he's, he's actually watching, I don't know. But he told me that he was... A recovering addict, and it just, it's so good to hear what God had done in my life. But it's not just me, it's each and every one of you has a story, has something to tell, has something to share. And in that, that process of restoration, He wants you to do that. He wants you to share both the good and the bad, not just the good. And then at the end of God's tactics, techniques, and procedures, we find this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I can't wait for that day. But see, there's a major contrast. There's a great controversy that we've been talking about this whole time between the devil and God. There's a war taking place. You are on that battlefront. This great controversy between God and the devil, you see the devil continuously studies you to cause you harm. Jesus already knows you. He's created you. He's going to preserve you from all evil. The devil wants to hide the gospel from you, whatever they, that might mean in your, in your eyes. He might be hiding the love of Jesus from you and the extent of which he's gone for you. But see, Jesus seeks to illuminate his word in you. The devil wants to blind you. Jesus seeks to open up your eyes. The devil wants you to look down into the love of the world 
and all the deceptions that are in it. Jesus only seeks for you to look up to heaven and all of the blessings that flow from him. The devil wants to bury you, but Jesus looks to resurrect you and give you an eternal life with him. So we've talked about the tactics, techniques, and procedures of the devil. We've talked about the TTPs of God. But what does that all mean to us? This all sounds great, right? What the devil's trying to do to us, what God has done to restore us, to redeem us, to reconcile us. But what, what does that mean for us? I think in the book of James, it is laid out perfectly. Turn to James chapter 4, and first we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. You know, I, I want to stop there real quick because so much right now, you see a fight happening everywhere. You see dissension taking place in our world, unlike what you've seen before. And he's trying to creep his way into the church through everything that's in the world to divide you and me from each other. But we need to stay strong and we need to continue to look to Christ. But we're going to continue. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy to God. You know, we're drawn away from our own desires, as it says here, and we're enticed. That doesn't mean that you have to cave in. That doesn't mean that you have to fall into it. The things that you ask for, as we've read here, you might be asking for things that have nothing to do with your spiritual walk. You might be asking for things like money, car, and those things are needed. But what's the, the objective behind that? What's the source behind all that? Is it for you to have worldly things just to be more comfortable? Or is it for you to draw closer to him? Do you want the things of the world so bad that you're willing to say, give me Barabbas? Do you really want to throw away the sacrifice that Jesus has made just so you can watch that one movie that you shouldn't be watching? Or play that one game that maybe you shouldn't be playing? 
because it's constantly taking you away. And I'm not saying that movies are bad. There's good movies out there. There's wholesome games out there. But is it taking you away from Jesus? Is it pulling you closer to God or pushing you away? Something to think about. But see, here is where our tactic, technique, and procedure comes into play. This is what we can do. In James chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Again, this is conditional. And this falls into what I said before. Human effort combined with divine power. Submit to God, he will lift you up. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Praise God. I want to invite my son-in-law, Ben, to come up here. He's not just my son-in-law anymore. He's my son. But how much time do we have? We'll see in James chapter 4, verse 14. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. What is your life? You may not have tomorrow. You may only have the next hour. Today may be your last day. Is it worth it? For you to hold on to all of the deceptions of the devil? God's already promised to relieve you from those deceptions. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 through 14, he says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to a place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. God is never going to stop calling you. He will never give up on you. He will continuously love you. He will gather you from all of the nations and from all the places where I have driven you. And he's allowed you to go down these places. He's allowed you to experience these things because you chose them. It wasn't in line with him, but he wanted you to see something.
something in your life that hadn't been revealed yet. He allowed you to go down these paths because he wanted your eyes to be opened to him. But he will call you and he will carry you away from them. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I pray that for each and every one of you here, that you will let go of those deceptions, that you will let go of those things that are holding on to you. For those of you at home watching, let go of what's holding you back. Experience the love and the joy and the peace and the plan that he has for you. Choose for yourselves this day and every day. Overcome the deceptions of the devil through Jesus who gave up everything so you could gain everything. And in my last verse, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. I want this to be ingrained in your mind right now because there might be something in your life that you're struggling with. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If there's something, anything, in your life that you need to let go of, if there's something that the devil has deceived you and you know it, I want you to stand up, please. And don't do it because I'm asking you to. I don't care if only one of you stands up. But I want this to be sincere. If there's something, anything in your life that you're struggling with, this is the moment, just like it was for me many years ago, where I said, no more. This battle that you've been fighting, it's not just yours. You don't have to fight it alone. And as my son-in-law is going to sing, who this battle belongs to. see a mountain move. 
stands Great is your faithfulness Your faithfulness I'm still in your hands This is my confidence You've never failed me Your promise still stands Great is your faithfulness Your faithfulness Cause I'm still in your hands This is my confidence You never failed me yet So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees With my hands lifted high Oh God, the battle belongs to you Every fear I lay at your feet Oh, I'll sing through the night Oh God, the battle belongs to you Right now, I just want to take this moment Because I desire for every one of you to be saved. To give up whatever is holding you back. For those that are watching, I want you to finally understand what it means to really live. To live in Jesus. To know him. To dine with him that all of the things that you've been carrying your whole life, the things that you've been dealing with, it's not yours. The battle is not yours. You just have to hand it over to Jesus. My desire is for each one of you to experience what I've experienced. Maybe you already have, and if you have, praise God. but I want to see everybody here in the kingdom. I want to hug you. I want to shake your hand. So right now, I just want to pray for all of those who are watching, who have made this decision, for all of you who are standing, and even if you're sitting and in your heart, this is what you want, is real change. I want to pray for you right now. So bow your heads with me, please. Heavenly Father and our loving Lord, I pray that everyone who is here, who is watching, Lord, touch their lives. Show yourself to them in a way that they never thought possible. Make changes in their life that they never thought possible. Help them to finally surrender and let go 
of the things that they're holding on to. Help me to surrender the things that I hold on to. Strengthen us, Father, in this walk. We know at times it's going to be difficult. We know at times it's going to try and test our character, but that's exactly what those moments are for. It's not for us to fall. And even if we do, we know that a righteous man falls seven times and gets back up. I pray, Lord, that this message that you have given today will change someone's life and either have them dedicate themselves to you for the very first time or rededicate themselves to you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And as always, we pray